my last, the last chapter of my lost cause, I'm well aware that these three processes have to be supplemented by the crucial one, the new walls apartheid, the new social divisions. Without them, I think all these three topics can be reappropriated by conservative problematic, like biogenetics, oh my God, the church will immediately say, of course, it's off limits. Ecology, you know who is now the greatest ecologist? Rupert Murdoch, the big bad guy. He all of a sudden discovered ecological threat, and so on and so on. So it's, it's more complex. But nonetheless, I hope you got my point. I think that along these lines, the question we should ask is that, although it's not such a good naive film, of Matrix. Are we not more and more like humanity in Matrix? Just in this kind of a passive position with even our dreams, everything uh, taken from us. Now we pretend a little bit that we live in a democracy, no? <laughs> I love democracy and free debate. Just let me warn you that uh, my favorite dialogues, I love dialogues, are late Plato dialogues. You know how they look, if you know philosophy, Plato, one guy talks all the time, the other guy every 10 minutes just interrupts him by saying, by Zeus, so it is, yes, so <laughs> A little bit of dialogue like that. Please, you, you, I'm here confused. I need another master to hear. <laughs> Go ahead. My question, my question is about, uh, in your recent paper published in these times, where you defend uh, Obama's rhetoric. And it's a very problematic, I'm here in between, yeah. yeah. And so, and then also, um, in your talk last night, where yep. you talked about, you know, maybe, and also in, of course, in the end of um, violence, where you mm -hmm. talked about how perhaps the greatest violence is just withdraw and not do anything. And is that a development of your opinions on political action from the past where you've advocated kind of like uh, taking power and No, 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 I'm still might go No, no, I think, sorry, yeah. Because of Critchley and stuff, you've, you've, you've um, maligned the position of being, you know, infinitely demanding or just critical. Yeah. And you said that we need to be have involved in concrete political actions. I think, like, your praise of uh, Bertrand Ariadne, right? And, uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, but you see here already you can see the difference because, you know, Critchley doesn't buy Aristide from what I know, from what I've heard. For him, Aristide is basically for me all too soft. For Critchley, Aristide is already too violent, totalitarian or whatever, whatever. But let me answer a question. No, first when I say sometimes the most, I say sometimes the most violent thing is to do nothing. And then I specify we should do nothing when the only open mode of being active is this pseudo-activity of doing something which, even if it may appear to be radical or whatever, basically sustains the existing system. And I'm here very precise. I refer to my older theoretical work, for example, in Plague of Fantasies, that notion of interpassivity or pseudo-activity. What does this mean? Let me be very brutal against myself. I remember when, 15, 20 years ago, I was in psychoanalysis for a short period. I hated it, then I stopped. Uh, I, as you can imagine, I talked all the time. <laughs> Why? Not because I had anything to say. I had strictly nothing to say. I had only one fear. If I stop talking for a second, the analyst may ask me a truly embarrassing question. So all my hyperactivity was just to guarantee that nothing will happen. And you know, unfortunately, I think that quite often this pseudo-radical academic protests function like that. So I'm very precise. Do nothing only when what you 
are doing you know what we should be aware it's not true that simply by doing nothing you support the system because often what people think is doing nothing is the they are doing quite many things. The system needs us to reproduce itself. We are all the time active and so on. Uh, uh, that's, what, that's what fascinates me. This how, if you, how should I put it, uh, uh, what fascinates me is how even when we think we are doing nothing by, okay, we think we are doing nothing, but we are doing nothing in the mode of our cynical, but cynical doubt. But even then, we are usually active. You probably know my old joke from my parallax view. I use it there, but it's a wonderful one. I will repeat it about that Niels Bohr who visited, uh, who was visited in his country house by a scientist friend, and the friend saw above the entrance <coughs> to his wooden house horseshoe, which I don't know if it is here in Europe. A horseshoe above the entrance is a superstitious item which allegedly prevents evil spirits to enter the house. So a friend asked Niels Bohr, but are you crazy? Are you superstitious? Why do you have this there? Niels Bohr answered, of course I'm not superstitious. Then the friend asked him, but why do you have it? Niels Bohr answered, I have it, I don't believe it, but I have it there because I was told that it works for you, even if you don't believe in it. That's how <laughs> ideology functions today. You don't believe in it, you think you are cynical, but you participate in it somehow. And that's the difference. That's the difficult thing to do. So, no, I, I only, and obviously many leftists were very hurt by this, because not only Critchley, the animosity exploded everywhere, how they put it, no. Uh, why? Because I touched their sacred cow. They really think that their protests are something tremendous that, I mean, I'm here, I know that, uh, you know what was a sobering effect? I know that it was meant as a bad, stupid joke, that it's not true. But I like it in a masochist way, almost, after the big anti-Iraq war protests in London, uh, Bush visited United Kingdom and the journalist asked him what do, does he think about big one million people on Trafalgar Square demonstrations against. You know what was President Bush's answer? Very cynical, stupid, but unfortunately I think there is an element of truth in it. It was, I totally support and admire these demonstrations. And then he said, you see, this is why we are going to Iraq, so that people there will also be able to demonstrate like people. I mean, it may be cynical, but you know, what disturbed me a little bit, I, my God, I was participant in many demonstrations at that point, but what disturbed me a little bit is how at the end of the day, every, everybody was satisfied. Those in power were satisfied, you see, we are a democratic society, they can protest because they knew that it will not affect in any way the decision, will there be a war or not. The protesters were satisfied, I claim, a little bit cynically, because most of them knew that this is a gesture of protest which will not change anything. So it surprised me how, at the end of the day, it's as if everybody did his or her or their duty, everybody was satisfied and so on. I claim there are often situations where you are, I think, we are wrong when we think that the strategy of those in power is to keep you inactive. No, they want dialogue, contact, and so on. Their strategy is, as my friend Robert Faller, the Austrian philosopher who invented the notion of uh, interpassivity, said, their strategy is the one that in boxing, I think, you call it clinching to the enemy. You know, like, 
Like, please come, let us have dialogue, and so on and so on. In such a situation, ominous silence is much better. I remember from my own socialist youth, where I'm not saying I was a great dissident, but somehow part of it, and incidentally, I felt absolutely at home as if the Republican Convention was back into real socialism. Why? You notice how Republicans repeat all the time, we are for change, for radical change, and so on. But they are the guys who are in power all the time. And I remember when I was young, and we started a little bit dissidents here and there, the answer of communists were not, we are status quo, don't do it. Their answer was, you are not critical enough. We communists are agents of radical change. You know, like, you had the same paradox of a power structure which legitimized itself as an agent of a permanent radical change, and so on and so on. So I feel very much at home with this talk. With this, uh, with this topic here, no? But, uh, uh, okay, sorry, I was too long. Okay, but you got the idea that, no, that's not my, I first, I think one should be simply an, uh, not unprincipled, but principled opportunist here. Let's do everything. Big protest when big protests are needed. Violence when violence is needed. Only civil disobedience when death is needed. Uh, doing nothing when that works. And I remember, back to my socialist experience, at some point when nomenclatura in power started to lose their confidence, they terribly wanted dialogue with us. We got all the time calls come to us to central committee, let's have a debate, and then when once we went there, we spit on them, you are worse than Stalin, and we thought we would be maybe arrested a little bit. No danger, but so that you can then have your badge of honor, victim of communism. <laughs> and no, communists told us so nice that you can let's debate more and so on and so on. And then next time we did nothing. We didn't come. And this incredibly raised the temperature, you know, like, my God, no dialogue, what is... At certain point this works, non-activity. Just doing, you know, when you are expected to do something, doing nothing can create terrible anxiety, which is good, it puts fear in there were guys there and uh, okay but there were also please don't privilege you try to be uh, opportunist centrist but don't privilege only the right give us a chance to the left okay no 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 this woman first and then go ahead just be loud enough please I think you reminded me that my short comment was isn't published in, I don't know if only online or printed in, in this time, so I don't want to repeat myself. My point is only my mixed feelings. On the one hand, I have a suspicion that he's a little bit doing what was done to Martin Luther King even now to himself, like watering down his message a little bit to be acceptable, no? On the other hand, I think that he is opening new topics new ways to talk about and don't underestimate the importance of this. For example, the horrible thing, as I improvised yesterday, for me is that it's not the fact that tortures go on in Guantanamo. I, in a cynical way, totally accept that maybe in China, I don't know where Russia, they torture much more. What worries me is that all of a sudden, torture is becoming, Germans have this wonderful word, salon fake, appropriate for polite salon Debate. All of a sudden, and that's horrible for me. I would like to live in a society where 
You don't debate about torture, it's obscene. It should be dogmatically evident you don't torture. It's the same as rape. I mean, I hope you women here wouldn't like to live in a society where one would, would have to <laughs> argue all the time that, you know, I claim that those who are, would have argued against rape would be even more dangerous because apparently opposing rape, they would be preparing the terrain for rape as a debate. I would like to live in a society where when somebody argues for rape, he's simply automatically dismissed as a strange jerk idiot or whatsoever, like you just turn around as if he made some unpleasant sound or whatever, <laughs> no? And I would like to live in a society where we torture is the same, my God, no? So uh, what I'm saying is that we have this type of changes, and uh, which are bad, but maybe we can counteract it with different changes, the things like race, other, how you treat, so-called terrorists and so on, that maybe something can be done here. And my point is simply, don't underestimate this, how we talk about things, how we perceive them, what we are, what is permissible to talk about publicly and so on. It is very important, because what we do is ultimately determined by what we talk about. I think that cynicism, in the sense, oh, you just talk and so on, it doesn't matter, is wrong attitude. So this would, so I have just a simple mixed, mixed feeling. Also, the reason I'm not ready to condemn simply Obama is that, you know, I'm deeply suspicious of that old pseudo-radical left strategy whose utter catastrophic result was na Nazism, where you know that how Communist Party reacted first to the threat of Hitler taking power. It was even better because now at least all illusions will fall and we will have clearly the enemy there in power. No? Okay, all illusions did fall, but then I don't know how many, 30, 40 million people have to die no, before or whatever. So again, uh, let's just, it's, I don't like this topic, is Obama sincere or not? Or does he really, I don't care. It is an opportunity to change the rules. I think this situation today, it's a very interesting situation. Things are changing radically at the level of what we talk about, like we can talk about torture and so on. All this points towards a great uncertainty in what I would have called with Hegel, Sittlichkeit, the social ethical substance of our lives. And we should also be active here. My God, let's not leave all the initiative to the bad guys, to introduce torture and all you want them, and so on and so on. So it's very modest talk. Uh, you, you've you've uh, argued against uh, uh, Negri's uh, notion of uh, the nation state. Uh, Negri's notion of nation state, no. Uh, Negri said there is no nation state. Yeah, yeah. And you, you say there yeah. is. Would you elaborate more on the basis of WTO, NAFTA, World Bank, IMF. First, I don't think these are truly neutral. Even Negri, uh, you know, Negri cheats a little bit. He's my friend, but I would say, in what sense? He, he, uh, he claims that, okay, there is this post-nation state, global space, but then he claimed that the United States did a nation state coup d'etat on the global order, no? So he even proposes in his last book, I don't think, did it really appear in, English or here with you, Goodbye Mr. Socialism. Did it already appear? I don't know. His book of self-interview, talk with a friend who is probably his friend so that they, okay. <laughs> uh, he there claims that for the left at the present level, 
we have an unresolved tension in global capitalism itself between the true universality of global capitalism uh, 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 embodied in these international brain trusts like, I really hate them, Davos, you know that, where the, all the big guys from Bill Gates to Dalai Lama or whatever meet. And he claims that at this level, the left should make an alliance with Davos, the true universal spirit of global capitalism against United States as a nation state coup d'etat. I think this is a naivety. There never will be a truly universal global capitalism. I think that nation state is here to stay, and I think even empirically this is true. My God, was there ever a stronger nation state as to its means, effective power of control, apparatus of control uh, uh, of, uh, of armed forces than the United States today. And if you see all this, uh, all this uh, uh, international organizations from World Trade Organization, International Monetary Fund, and so on. Isn't it the problem that they are simply not truly universal? They are in service of a couple of nation states. Which is why, although I don't think this is a long-term strategy, at least tactically, one should even do a little bit of immanent critique of global capitalism measuring it by its own standards. If you ask me for a state which is paradigmatic today, I would say Mali. Mali, you know, the small, not so small, okay, little people, uh, uh, a small number of people, uh, African, uh, no Western African country, no. Why? I will simplify to the utmost the analysis that I've read, but the situation is, I simplified the following one. In the south of Mali, they have cotton, in the north, they have beef. What's their problem? Their problem is that that cotton is the best in the world, produced at a price which is half of the price of the cost of the American cotton here in uh, Carolina and so on. What's the problem? The problem is, as you know, because these are Republican congressional districts and so on, uh, United States spent more money to support cotton farmers here than the entire state budget of Mali. So I read an I saw even on TV an interview with Mali Minister of Economy who said, no, we don't want your help. We don't want any socialist measures. We just please want you play by your own rules. Where is your free market competition? If you just allow market to work really without you violating it by giving state support to your farmers, Mali would be saved in a couple of years. No way. No way, the United States didn't budge. In the North is a similar situation only in concerns cow milks and the bad guy are Nestlé and other European companies. So it's incredible the Western hypocrisy on how they insist on, you know, do away with state mechanisms, uh, allow market to work to these poor third world countries, but themselves they brutally ignore. They brutally, for example, uh, that's the irony. Now I'm talking to the north of so Mali. Why does Negri uh, uh, have that position? I don't know because he is so fascinated by, you know, what one has to do with Negri is the evil thing to look at his interviews, not in Europe, but when he is outside of Europe, when he thinks that our Marxist KGB big brother doesn't see him, <laughs> like in Latin America, he often says their things 
where he just explodes what he really thinks and it's afraid maybe to say it in Europe. For example, I read a recent interview with him in Brazil where he said, today's most dynamic digital capitalism practically already is communism. We no longer have to fight it, we just have to join it, and so on and so on. He's, which is why very strangely, for example, in this book, Governance of Socialism, Negri praises Lula and totally opposes Chavez. A strange animosity against Chavez and so on. I think he's a little bit too much obsessed by this very old-fashioned Marxist idea of capitalism at its most progressive is practically already communism. Which is why no wonder they didn't notice how both his and Hart big books, Empire and especially Multitude, and in a very theological note, with explicit reference to a kind of a theological term, they claim multitude, local, but the moment will come when... I think this moment will never come. I think that what Negri sees as an obstacle to fully exploding multitude, state power and so on, is really its condition of possibility. I think Negri makes, to put it in Marxist terms, this pretty classical mistake he, he sees only as an obstacle that what is a positive condition. Which is why, again, we shouldn't say some old leftist claim against this uh, idea of, uh, of uh, uh, disappearing state, no, we need a stronger state, no, we need a different state. We already have a very strong state, my God. Where does this meat come that state is slowly If it is disappearing, it's in a very Stalinist way, you know that Stalin, in his infinite wisdom, said that in Soviet Union state is disappearing only in a dialectical way, said Stalin, that state disappears through the fortifying of his, its organs, especially organs of repression. No, in this sense only I would say that the state is disappearing today, no? No, effectively, okay, but I'm not just getting confused now. The message is clear is that the first step of critical thinking is do not accept the way the system describes itself. The first thing is to redefine the very coordinates. It's not that we all share the same analysis and then we just differ in what is good, what is bad, and so on and so on. One really needs thinking more than ever today. And here I disagree, although I respect him as a political figure with uh, Noam Chomsky. A friend of mine had a year ago lunch with Chomsky and told me that Chomsky told him today we don't need any theory. Everything is totally cynical, clear. The only thing we have to do is to tell people what is going on. I disagree with it. I don't, this is this absolutely naive, rational aspect of Chomsky, which I don't think it works. Oh. <coughs> this will be the last question. <coughs> last day, okay, we can make a Hegelian trial. <laughs> Could you tell me the etymology of your name, your first name and your last name? It's very disgusting. Slavoj means the glorious one. <laughs> 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 I don't know, I only know that's the only good news, that it's of Czech origins, and in Czech it's the same name as that Jan Zizka, you know, Jan Husit, the Protestants, you know. And then Jan Zizka was the greatest warrior of Protestants. He had a great revolutionary army, they were famous for having so-called moving fortresses, fighting Catholic Church. They, they, had, they put like 30, 40 oxen and put on them a giant wooden structure, like a small fortress, so that the whole fortress was moving and 
the earth was shaking and terrorizing the enemy, and they were so-called Hussites or Taborites in the Tabor, which is down south of Prague. They established there their own Protestant, radical Protestant Republic in a wonderful Stalinist way, like they liberated farmers, no, nothing to pay to, to, to the feudal masters, and then they say, just to, su just to sustain your revolutionary power, us, you will have to pay to us even a little bit more. <laughs> no, no, quite seriously, that part of my name I'm not ashamed of. It's the first really modern, violent, egalitarian movement. Protestantism at its best. Yeah, but okay, my God, the guys, no. just very briefly, yes. Uh, oh my God, don't read the long question. It's okay. not. Uh, okay, sorry. <laughs> in in uh, your proposed response to how capitalism addresses consumers, you propose that consumers impose their own meaning on the act of consumption by saying this isn't to save the African child, this is to kill the African child. This was attempted by the punks and was appropriated. Yes. How can we resist that appropriation? Uh, no, no, first, I wouldn't say that consumers themselves impose the meaning, because what meanings does it have? It is quite clearly suggested to you, like, for example, the simplified, I know example that I evoked, a Starbucks. They don't leave it to you, they directly suggest to you in what way you should feel well, you know. The stupid cup of coffee, oh, you see the happy African child or whatever, no? Who gets the stupid tuberculosis injection or whatever, no? But with concerning punk, oh my God, okay, we yeah. don't have time to go into it, but I deeply agree with you here that punk is problematic. But I have an answer. More radical groups, for the lack of better name, I would have called them post-punk. I don't know to what extent they are known here. There was even a Slovene group called Leibach. Now I no longer respect them. They made, for my taste, too much of a compromise with the new power in Slovenia. Now they want to be recognized as for their contribution to Slovene independence and so on. But there is a German group, do you know it? Rammstein. I think they are good guys, progressive. Why? What are they doing? Uh, people think, you know, these stupid liberals totally miss the point. They see Rammstein as, you know, they have all this proto-totalitarian Germany. They think that they ironically mock the totalitarian rituals, but then typical liberal worry. That's okay if you are intelligent, but what if there are some young, innocent people who will take this too seriously and really become Nazis? They totally miss the point. You know what I think Rammstein is doing? Let me give you an example from a different domain, but it goes in the same direction. In Carinthia, which is north from Slovenia, immediately South Austrian province, this is the original place of that Austrian right-wing populist Jörg Haider, who, to, in order to gain his popularity 20 years ago already, 25, he proposed as a slogan a totally crazy idea that we Slovenes, which are, we are nobody, small city nation, nonetheless, that we are a threat to Austria, <laughs> that we want to occupy Carinthia. And then his slogan was, in German, Kärnten bleibt Deutsch which means Carinthia will or should remain German. Now, what did the Austrian leftists do? They published in main newspapers, they bought one page, and started with Kärnten bleibt Deutsch. Then they didn't do any ideological analysis how this is wrong. They just, that was the entire paid ad. They just supplemented it with obscene 
Variations like Kärnten bleibt Deutsch, Kärnten died Bleutsch, Kärnten bleibt Bleutsch, and so on. It sounded so dirty, obscene. Doesn't Chaplin do something of the same? Don't underestimate him in his The Great Dictator. You know those speeches of Hitler, where you have Hitler deprived of his message, reduced to this vulgar obscenities, and so on. You see this raw emotional material. And I think Rammstein is doing something similar. They are directly confronting you with the obscenity of totalitarian nationalist rituals, but in this way they are much more radically undermining it. They, like, after you see, like, uh, Chaplin, great dictator, and so on, you can no longer take it. It is as if, you know, something happens like, when, similar to, you know, when you see an operatic performance or a great speech. You know what happens on TV when you turn off the sound? The gestures become ridiculous. Something at a similar level is what Chaplin does to Hitler there. You remember that famous speech where it's really like Kant and Bad Bloitz or what? Uh, he speaks some totally incomprehensible, strange language. Only from time to time you recognize a vulgar German word like Wiener Schnitzel, Apfelstrudel or what? It's as if Hitler is unmasked in his obscenity. And I think something along these lines Rammstein are doing. And it's a very nice strategy because then the, I think, again, this is totally false danger. This perception, what if people take it seriously? I hope they do because in this way they will really get rid of it, of Nazism. I mean, because again, what you get, so again, at this level I have, I cannot develop it now, a very precise theory of why punk was not enough and wha why you have to move like a little bit further. Because, you know, it's even in Europe there were big polemics, at least when I was young, not so young, 20 years ago, how to categorize even these banks, you know? Punk, but it's no longer that old punk, uh, punk, uh, Johnny Rotten and so on that we knew, no? But it's a very appropriate question. I agree with you here, yeah. 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 Well, uh, Really quickly, um, just um, in, in some of your previous like, uh, uh, louder. In some of your other lectures, you mentioned that uh, the favelas in Brazil perhaps might be a site of sort of like a new, sort of almost like ontological shift in like leftist kind of like uh, interaction. Yeah. And in your new book, I, I thought in, in the in the section on Heidegger, I thought it was really interesting that that you said that his disillusionment was that like that Nazism wasn't actually an ontological, but only like an ontic. Sorry, did you function? Yeah, that it was. Right, that's what I, I don't know. Maybe I read that wrong. But yeah. like. But so how do you, how, uh, would you say that like it's possible to have an ontological um, movement on the left today? Or ontological what? Yeah, like 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 a like a shift in in like um, in in politics and like in like a, like a new like something beyond capitalism that is like. Uh, uh, no, no uh, here my position is honestly tragic and moderately optimistic. I'm not saying automatically there will be a new leftist movement. I'm saying that we will sooner or later face a dilemma. If we, if there will not be, then we are approaching some kind of a new apartheid, neo-authoritarian society. It's already happening in front of our eyes. So I think that in contrast to old Marxism, the big cover of history is not on our side. Unfortunately, we cannot afford this old Marxist reliance, you know, history is with us. We are moving with the train of history. No, we have to, as they put it, Benjamin said this, that the task today is that the problem is that the train of history is running towards precipice. 
Our task is not to run the train of history to stop it. Maybe, maybe in the last minute, no? So, uh, but uh, no, I don't see precisely, unfortunately, any, if by ontology you mean any ontological guarantee. You know, this almost pseudo-Marxist, with Marxist more ambiguous automatism, like, you know, like history itself is pushing towards emancipation. No, history itself is pushing towards catastrophe. Catastrophe is an open situation. My only pessimism with small element of optimism is only that, uh, that times of catastrophe, of apocalypse, are also times of openness. It means that I, what I think cannot happen is that the present system, the way it is, can slowly expand itself so that in 20 years the whole of the world will be a happy worldwide liberal democracy. It cannot. It cannot. There are not only ecological, not only these vulgar empirical limits, like not enough resources, but for more fundamental reasons. This means an open situation. Nothing is guaranteed. Uh, you, Doc, I could give one and then I will collapse. <laughs> <laughs> to paraphrase Karl uh, Smith, yeah. do we need to find an enemy? Ah, uh, here I would say, I don't have time to go into it, but here I would say that, uh, uh, you know what's the problem with Carl Schmidt? <laughs> it's that I'm more and more convinced that Agamben has the right reading when he says that all Carl Schmidt is basically a desperate attempt to recuperate and reinscribe into his own reactionary blah blah positions the insight of the young Benjamin in his critique of violence. That the, the great, all the effort of Carl Schmitt is to obliterate what Benjamin calls divine violence, the emancipatory violence, because Carl Schmitt is not that he allows too much violence, not enough. For him, it's only, if you dismiss simple criminal violence, it's only this, how you call it, state protective violence of a constituted state and state founding violence. There is no space. So Carl Schmitt is, I think, very reactive figure. The Carl Schmitt's big other is interesting to know, do you know that they even exchanged letters when they were young? Yeah, yeah, in the early 20s, they even had correspondence, Walter Benjamin and Carl Schmitt. I think there is no way to read Carl Schmitt without a reference to, to, to Walter Benjamin. I think the key is given in Walter Benjamin, and there is now the topic how to read Benjamin here my good enemy now, Simon Critchley, whom you mentioned, the polemics goes on, I warn you, it will be soon printed, it gets even much dirtier, because now Critchley attacked me, claiming that I totally misread Benjamin's notion of divine violence, he claimed that I am for some kind of irrational outburst of violence, and the way he reads it, this will be my answer, is I think totally wrong. What he does is he reads divine violence as a kind of a strategic in, in the sense of if we were to be perfect divine there would have been no violence but unfortunately in our imperfect condition in order to prevent greater violence you have to strategically kill use violence and so on and so on i think if benjamin's violence is not something it's not this benjamin and agamben is right here in the, says that uh, it's not at the level of purposes that you can distinguish uh, divine violence from the bad one, prostate, mythical violence. He says very, he says almost the opposite. Benjamin <coughs> says mythic violence is 
violence which serves as a means to a goal. Divine violence are means without a goal. If anything is in its appearance even more irrational outburst whatsoever. So I think that this pragmatic reading, you know, we would all like to live in a world without violence, but because of imperfection and so on, you have to kill here, torture there, and so on and so on. Precisely this utilitarian calculus of a moderate level of violence is not what Benjamin means. I think I mean, Benjamin is an embarrassment here. My right-wing friend, Peter Sloterdijk, whatever you think about him, he's reactionary, but we personally like each other. I mean, I'm very open with him. When I meet him, I tell him, listen, things are clear. If I take over, you get a one-way ticket to Magadan, Siberia, and you never come back, and so on. But nonetheless, he is right when he makes this clear in his book where he also attacks me on, I forgot what was the title, his, ah, Zeitung Zoran, yes, Time and Rage. When he claims that, that uh, are we aware that Benjamin, under the notion of divine violence, he simply legitimizes state terror and, and, uh, and, and mob violence? Yes. He's, he's, you know, this is what I don't trust with this postmodern soft souls where every academic thinks about this, about divine violence should be a violence which is very violent, but in some abstract, radical, symbolic sense where nobody is really hurt, you know, and nothing horrible really... No, no, sorry, Benjamin is here very clear. Divine violence means killing blood and so on. And I try to... So the polemic is going on. But nonetheless, to answer you, I... Although I did contribute there, she asked me, to that volume, The Actuality of Karl Schmidt, or what, by Chantal Mouffe, I think, again, that his role is a little bit... Uh, exaggerated. I, I mean, if you read some leftists, it almost appears as if the only way to the renewal of Marxism is Carl Schmitt or what. I think you find everything that a young Christian Marxist gentleman needs to know in Walter Benjamin. <laughs> it seems as though you're like resurrecting the, the, the symbolic figure of the enemy. I mean, we need an enemy to survive, in a certain sense. Like, no, but I'm doing something uh, else. Here, no, not that we need a name, but here I will tell you something where I agree with but you. Uh, it is as if today's liberalism is prohibiting the very word enemy. It's as if in politics there are not real enemies, just people who are duped, who are victims, blah, blah, blah. And you know the price we are paying for it is that enemy returns all the more forcefully as Guantanamo and so on is totally excluded from human, com from human community. I claim that the other side of this liberal idea of, not, no, we should accept the fact that, sorry, in poly, it's not so much that we need an enemy. There are enemies, my God. Let's not, it's, you know, here, this is why I, this is what I find problematic in all this multiculturalist topic of tolerance and so on and so on not because of any class essentialism, but the whole matrix, as it were, of struggle changes. Because in multiculturalism, anti-racism, <coughs> the whole point is to transform antagonism into peaceful coexistence. Men and women, different races. Like, the, the point of feminism is not, I hope not, maybe, whatever, maybe I will sign confession and kill myself, but in principle, <laughs> it's not that men should disappear. It's to find a new, peaceful, blah, 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 where one doesn't treat the other. But sorry, this is not the logic of what we once called class struggle. Mm -hmm. 
The point of class struggle is not to replace antagonism with peaceful coexistence. No, it's a real struggle among enemies. And it's not so much as some pathological need for it. If anything, the present liberal system has a need for it. Mm -hmm. For me, this is the whole topic of the war of terror, how precisely at the point when capitalism won, when liberal tolerance ideology won, there was this need to quickly construct a new enemy. Then, do you remember how throughout the 90s it wasn't clear? At some point the candidates were even Medellin cartel, cocaine and so on, finally, happily for them, they found terrorists and so on and so on. It's liberal system who here, this is the truth of, of uh, Carl Schmitt, that liberal system itself deeply needs a figure of the enemy. Sorry, now I have uh, a little bit tired. Okay.